Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, economyofone.com, economyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One. Fresh off the trail from CPAC 2017, had a great time, met a lot of neat people, got to hear President Trump speak, got to hear Vice President Pence speak. And got to meet a lot of great people, several of them you'll hear from tonight on the show, starting with Gordon Chang and Ambassador John Bolton. Joining me now is one of my favorites, Gordon Chang. He's a lawyer and author who's lived in China and Hong Kong for almost two decades, most recently in Shanghai, working as counsel to the American law firm Paul Weiss. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China, as well as a contributor to Forbes and Forbes.com. You can find his blog over at worldaffairsjournal.org. Gordon, welcome to An Economy of One. Thank you so much. I love going to CPAC just so I can see people that I talk to throughout the year eye to eye. This, this is a lot is of fun. This is amazing this year. I mean, it's just the energy here, mm-hmm. and this is just fantastic. So I am so pleased to be here. I've told my wife, I've told our listeners that we are experiencing a paradigm shift in our economy and history. I feel we were really close to the edge of having some bad things happen, and and now maybe we can have some good things happen. So uh, we've talked a lot about China and Hong Kong economics and stuff in the past. I wanted to hit you with a couple things because there are days when I'm in conflict with some of the issues that President Trump is bringing to the table. So first of all, I want to talk TPP. I mean, we've talked about that in the past. It's such a complex thing. I didn't. I just don't know where I am on that. I want an expert's opinion from someone like you. What do you think of the TPP and essentially President Trump just killing it? Yeah, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a complex issue because there's really two components to it. One of them is the economic effects on the United States, but also the other aspect, and this is why I support TPP, is because of the strategic implications. Uh, Because there's going to be trade in the region regardless. I'd like to see that trade flow directed towards the United States. I'd like to see us writing the rules for the region. I don't want to see China doing that. 
Um, in terms of the economic implication for American businesses, it probably would not have been as much as people talk about in terms of um, the promises that were made. It probably would have been neutral. Um, but nonetheless, the strategic implications are important. Now, I think that the U.S. withdrawing is not going to bring on the apocalypse, as many people talk about, because China's not in a position really to take advantage of it. For two years now, their trade volumes have declined. In 2015, their two-way trade fell 8.0%. Last year, imports were down 5.5%, exports down 7.7%. So although there's a vacuum that we've created by withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it's not something that China will really be able to fill in because the problem's in their own economy. Now, we've talked in the past, you've mentioned that you know, the Chinese economy, while it's second largest in the world, second to us, has some issues. They have some problems. And uh, you even wrote a book, The Coming Collapse of China. But uh, I read a column of yours recently and kind of mixed numbers they put out. They put out some positive numbers, but you dug into them and there are a lot of credit expansion in those numbers as well. That's the real issue for China right now. Um, China says that it grew 6.7% last year. I don't think so. Most people don't think so. Mm -hmm. Um, We really don't know how fast the expansion was, but it could have very well been about the same as ours, 2 or 3%. But even if you accept the 6.7%, China created debt five times faster than GDP. Now, if China really were growing around 2 or 3 then that number goes up by a substantial amount. So China right now is on a position where it can accumulate debt because it's got a state-dominated economy, but nonetheless, it can't do this for very much longer. And that's why there's been these spate of stories, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, everywhere, about is this the year where there's a crunch in the Chinese economy because of debt? I don't know if it's this year. You know, I've been wrong because I thought that the economy would have failed up before now. But nonetheless, it's going to happen soon. We see their currency, the renminbi uh, or yuan, going down in value significantly on a regular basis and, and compared against the dollar, of course. First question, how much of that is state devaluation of the currency, how much of it is just the market devaluing their currency against other countries? Well, last year, China's renminbi declined 6.9% against the dollar in the onshore market. And really, that's because people have been taking their money out. And so you have a currency right now that China's trying to defend. Um, And it's at an artificially high level because Beijing has been spending a lot of its foreign exchange reserves defending its currency. Uh, Now, there's two reasons why there's a lot of net capital outflow. One of them is because the state wanted Chinese enterprises to invest abroad so China could exert political influence, and also because Chinese people were losing confidence in their own economy. At sort of the, oh, I'd say around September or October last year, Beijing put a real break on M&A because it was worried about net capital outflow. And to put some numbers on this, in 2015, net capital outflow, according to Bloomberg, was $1 trillion. In 2016, we don't know what the number is. I suspect it's slightly more than 2015. But whatever it is, that number was enormous, and China cannot sustain that. And that's the reason why they're trying to defend their currency, by the way, because if their currency declines in value, that will just add even more pressure to capital outflow. So right now, Beijing is in this essentially an existential struggle over its currency. Now, let's take a step back. 
for some of us that are kind of amateur economists. When you say the currency is outflowing, are Chinese citizens exchanging their paper money for dollars, or yes. are they buying things in other countries? All of the above. All of uh, the above. Uh, yes, Chinese um, citizens are allowed to exchange each year $50,000 of renminbi for foreign currency. But that right, although it hasn't been taken off the books, is severely restricted because of Beijing's concerns about currency outflow. And you have seen um, real estate markets in places like Hong Kong, Sydney, London, San Francisco, Vancouver, Toronto, New York, just boom, largely because of two things. One, Russian money, and the second, Chinese money. Right. I mean, the joke in New York is that some of these apartment condos, half Russian, half Chinese. <laughs> um, but clearly there's been a lot of money that's been coming out, and also people have been leaving as well because there's a lot of turbulence right now. Mm -hmm. 2017 is going to be a very interesting year. It's the year when the Communist Party holds its 19th Party Congress. Party Congresses these days are held once every five years. We're going to have a much clearer outlook into President Xi Jinping's ability to consolidate power. And he's going to do everything he possibly can this year to prevent um, the currency from falling apart, from preventing all sorts of adverse consequences. They're really going to hold on tight this year because there's going to be political consequences to this. But after the 19th Party Congress, which should be sometime October, November time frame, I think all bets are off. Now, you know, I get asked, I don't know, maybe once a week on air or personally about people in China coming over here and buying stuff, mainly real estate. And my answer is always the same. I'm old enough to remember when Japan was coming over here and buying everything. And I said, you know, I didn't have to learn Japanese in the 80s. As uh, long as the check clears, I don't care that the Chinese people buy our, our real estate. They can't dig it up and take it home. And then I got to thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't give such a flippant answer. And so I thought about it, and I thought, well, you know, if I was Chinese and the dollar continued to appreciate against my currency, I would buy something that's valued in dollars. So at least it kept up with the valuation. Is that a fair assessment as to why some of this is being spent over here? That, I think, actually is the primary reason for uh, Chinese to buy foreign real estate. You know, there have been some pretty um, bad deals that the Chinese have made, mm -hmm. um, at least from our perspective. We look at that and say that's just not economic. But from their point of view, it really is advantageous because they're getting into dollars. And, and so with the dollar being resurgent, with the new Treasury Secretary saying that he believed in a strong dollar, with the Federal Reserve going to increase interest rates more than once this year, um, with general confidence in the economy. And I actually think Trump will engineer a boom with lower taxes, less regulation. So there's a lot of optimism about the U.S. right now. And that means even if there weren't anything going on in China, you'd have the Chinese naturally taking advantage of that. And, you know, you're absolutely right. The Japanese didn't take over the United States. Right. Uh, something you mentioned at the very beginning today that uh, I don't really think about, and that's putting Russia in the same category as China or a similar category as China. Do we have the same state-controlled currency and, and people wanting, getting, wanted, wanting to get rubles out of the country and exchange them for dollars? That kind of, I mean, is it similar with Russia? Well, there's different reasons for it, um, but you do have capital flight. Um, you know, the Russian economy actually contracted last year, um, or at least two years ago, probably contracted last year as well. Um, and it, it's just 
there doesn't seem to be very much in recovery there. But the real issue, of course, in Russia is politics, mm -hmm. um, as it is in China. Uh, so you have a number of reasons why there um, is, uh, you know, real problems, um, and and you see capital flight out of of Russia. So th there's the Russian economy is structured very differently than the Chinese one, but they've got issues which I think are are just as um, serious as the ones we see in China. Excellent. Well, Gordon, this has been a real treat for me. I always enjoy talking to you. It's very knowledgeable on that part of the world, and, and we see it in the headlines almost every day. Something going on over there that affects us, and hope we can talk again soon. Absolutely. I had so much fun. So I appreciate thanks. it. Coming up next, Ambassador John Bolton. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Ambassador John Bolton. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. As a diplomat in 2005 and 2006, he served as a U.S. permanent representative to the United Nations. Prior to that, he was the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. Currently at AEI, Ambassador Bolton's area of research is U.S. foreign and national security policy. Ambassador, Welcome to An Economy of One. Well, glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's been a while since we talked. I think the last time we talked, uh, we spent most of our time talking about uh, Secretary of State Kerry's, I don't know if we want to call it a treaty or agreement or, or debacle or whatever with Iran. Right. And uh, a little time has passed from that. We got a different administration. I find it interesting that Iran really felt like they were being used or abused during Senator Kerry's talks, and now they don't want anybody touching the agreement. So what's going on with Iran lately? Look, this agreement was a debacle for the United States. It uh, essentially gave away an enormous effort to put economic pressure on Iran through international sanctions because of its nuclear weapons program. The way the agreement was structured was that Iran gets all the benefits in effect up front, and its compliance obligations primarily or backloaded toward the end. So Iran, right at the front end, had, uh, depending on your estimate, perhaps up to $150 billion of frozen assets, unfrozen, made wow. available to it. Uh, and uh, particularly in Europe, the restrictions on trade and investment with Iran that were having a significant impact on its economy were eliminated. So now trade and investment dollars and euros are flowing into Iran, which, by the way, makes it very difficult to untangle the agreement and go back because people have put uh, in reliance on the agreement, have, uh, have made capital commitments and the like. Uh, but they have done precious little, uh, really cosmetic changes to their nuclear weapons program. Uh, and I think they've been violating the agreement since before it was uh, agreed uh, in the first place. Now, you know, with the new administration, President Trump has pretty much a completely different narrative around some of our agreements with these people. Uh, I know Iran, Russia's in the news about every day. Uh, North Korea is North Korea. What do you see as the most immediate top challenges for the new administration? Well, certainly the continuing threat of international terrorism. He, was, he made that a big campaign issue. He's asked for new war plans from the Pentagon to deal with ISIS in the Middle East. 
uh, and those should be forthcoming really in, uh, within the, the next week or 10 days, I would think. Uh, but I do think proliferation of nuclear weapons, but also chemical and biological weapons, uh, it can make any terrorist attack uh, infinitely more deadly than 9-11. And uh, you mentioned North Korea, I think quite rightly. Look, we're just reading in the news now that uh, the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, has apparently directed the assassination of his half-brother in Malaysia which is uh, indicative, I think, of potential internal turmoil in North Korea. But mm -hmm. also the news is from the Malaysian authorities, at least, they think the cause of death was VX nerve gas administered by these assassins. Now, VX is a prescribed chemical weapon. It's very, very dangerous. It's like sarin. You remember that sure. gas used in the Japanese subway attack some, uh, in Tokyo some decades ago. Uh, we have long believed that North Korea has literally... Uh, thousands of tons of sarin and VX uh, chemical weapons and, and perhaps biological weapons as well. So this threat by North Korea uh, really in a regime that is, is uh, irrational by our standards, maybe it's rational by their standards, but it's certainly not anything uh, that we should get used to, uh, is proving the, uh, its capability to act in a fundamentally bizarre fashion by, by publicly assassinating uh, a close relative of its leader. You know, every day we hear both sides of the story about President Trump and this new administration and their relationship with Russia and Putin, and it's different than the relationship with President Obama. You're the guy. I mean, you know of all these people and, and the inside stuff. What's going on with us in Russia? Where are, are we? We good? We bad? Where are we at with them? Well, you know, there's. A, I, I think what President uh, Trump has said is the honest view that if he could make some deals with Russia that uh, that enhanced our relationship, helped achieve our objectives in the war against terrorism, that's not a bad thing. And uh, it's hard to tell a new president uh, uh, your odds of success are actually fairly low because. Uh, Russian interests are more often than not contrary to ours. And, and Trump has been very straightforward about that. He said, look, this is a relationship. We don't know the outcome. Maybe it'll be good. Maybe it'll be bad. He wants to give it a try. Mm -hmm. But he's also, in, in the cases where he has said something about substantive bilateral relations, he has not been afraid to criticize Putin. Uh, about a week ago and then as recently as yesterday, uh, he criticized the Obama administration's 2010 New START arms agreement, nuclear arms agreement with Russia, said it was a one-sided deal, badly negotiated by the Obama administration. He's dead right on that. This is a bad deal. Uh, so uh, given that our president has written literally the book on the subject, reopening mm -hmm. that treaty or junking it and starting over again is a real prospect. Now, that's not going to make the Russians happy. But the, the core of Trump's approach to foreign policy, as he said repeatedly in the campaign, is what's in America's interest. Right. This treaty, this new START treaty, <clears throat> is not in our interest. I wish the Senate had rejected it. So with a new president, we have a new pair of eyes on it. Maybe we'll get a different outcome. Ambassador, I know that... Everybody is tugging on your sleeve. I really appreciate the time you're able to spend with us today. Always a pleasure. Always an honor, sir. And uh, look forward to chatting with you again soon. Well, I look forward to it as well. Glad to be with you. Thank you very much, Thank sir. Thank you. Coming up next, Deneen and Tom Borelli. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one.
back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Deneen and Tom Borelli. Deneen is political correspondent at Conservative Review. Tom is a contributor at Conservative Review, a contributor with Fox News, appearing regularly on Hannity, America's Newsroom, The O'Reilly Factor, Fox and Friends, and Your World with Neil Cavuto. She has appeared on Fox Business Programs, Making Money with Charles Payne, and Lou Dobbs Tonight. Ms. Borelli is author of Blacklash, How Obama and the Left are Driving Americans to the Government Plantation. Deneen and Tom, welcome to An Economy of One. Hello, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us uh, here at CPAC. You're the author of a book called Blacklash, How Obama and the Left are Driving Americans to the Government Plantation. That's a pretty wide statement. I'm so shy. I guess so. How was the IRS audit, by the way? (laughs) Yeah, well. (laughs) They came to our door once. Did did. they really? Absolutely. (laughs) Knock, knock. Not that that we owed them anything. I I always make the joke that uh, whenever we criticize the government, (laughs) we we, we get to meet some new people. You guys do a lot of great work at the Conservative Bureau. I, I almost don't know where to start. There's so many things to talk about. But given the fact that we have a completely new administration, completely new paradigm, really, in the administration. What's your thoughts on the possibility, the optimism, if you will, of changing directions politically now? Oh, sure. New administration and also a hopeful country uh, because Tom and I, we travel the country and we talk to people all the time, real down-to-earth people who are concerned about the direction our country is going in. Mm-hmm. And you know whether it's the supermarket or, or going to church every week, people are engaged. Uh, they are excited. They are so hopeful about our future because Donald Trump uh, comes off as a real down-to-earth person who ran on a certain campaign promise of jobs, the economy, rolling back regulations, lowering taxes, and people get that, they see it, they feel it, and I think there is a new hope that is, you know, really on the horizon in our country. Given your you guys' experience and traveling around the country, actually seeing most of the electorate and, and talking to them, how close to the edge do you think we were? Oh my gosh. Uh, it was even election night. Uh, it was still frightening for us because with the media, and we'll probably talk about that in a moment, the media was basically lying to Americans with the polls. And you know, it's like Hillary is ahead. And it's like they thought the left had this in the bag when they really didn't. And I tell you, it's it's uh, it's really eye-opening for me that it's actually shocking that the media has has done a disservice to our country even till today because they don't want to really report about what president trump is doing Mm -hmm. Uh, they don't want the truth to get out there because you still have people on the fence who may not support him or may be thinking about supporting him and if you are only getting your news and information from that wing of the media they're trying to influence people change hearts and minds and that's really concerning you know, uh, Tom, we were talking a little bit before we went on on air about some of the different industries out there, and you mentioned the coal industry, and, and President Obama, I mean, he kept his promise. I mean, early on, he said, we will bankrupt you uh, if you want to use coal. Talk to us a little bit about that, and, and is the coal industry recoverable? I mean, there, there was a lot of that's damage done to it over the last eight years. Yeah, uh, that's one of the things that President Obama did not lie about. 
<laughs> right, right from the beginning, he said he wanted to, you know, bankrupt, you know, utilities and coal companies that mm-hmm. that used coal, and then he used the EPA as his weapon. The first try was that cap and trade regulation, but I mean the law, but that didn't pass. So right. then he did an end run around Congress by using, you know, the powers of the EPA to essentially regulate the coal industry almost out of business for a number of coal companies actually filed for bankruptcy. And it was mm-hmm. devastating for, obviously, shareholders and also for the coal miners and areas of uh, West Virginia and Kentucky and parts of Ohio were just devastated. And so he did harm to the coal industry. Now, President Trump has come in. He's rolling back some of these regulations. The coal industry can come back to a certain degree. I don't think it's ever going to come back to where it was. I mean, at one point, they were, just when Obama came into office, I believe it was like 50% of electricity came from coal. Right. I think that, now we're down around 30%. So I, hopefully it will stabilize. I'm actually I'm confident it will stabilize. Mm-hmm. We also have a wealth of natural gas to power our utilities. And if you're running a utility, what you want is to have the most amount of choice. Today's coal's cheap, I'll use that. Natural gas is cheap, I'll use that. And the consumer benefits. With natural gas, now with with President Trump, we have the opportunity to export uh, liquefied natural gas uh, to countries, you know, around the world, especially in Europe, where they need the energy. They don't want to get it from Russia. Russia uses, you know, energy as as a lever to, uh, to advance their policies. So I, I'm I'm pretty optimistic. It's uh, it's really a new day with President Trump. You know, again, that that being said, you know, I'm optimistic too. I, I was optimistic uh, uh, the day after. I got to tell you, election night, I I, I, I couldn't take it. I, I I went to bed at 9:30 and. Oh, you missed all the fun. Uh, I missed all the fun. But, <laughs> you missed Anina at 3 o'clock in the morning oh, at, at Fox News. I, 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 I got up at 5 o'clock, and I asked my wife, I said, well, do we want to know? And she said, we got to find out sooner or later. I turned on the TV. I kid you not. You know how they put that stuff underneath who, the commentators. I didn't listen to the commentators. It said, President-elect Trump, Hillary Clinton concedes. Shut the TV back off. Went about my day. I mean, that, that's all Went I needed champagne. to know <laughs> at that point. But I was stunned. Yeah. And I, I mentioned that we noticed, even in the grocery store and stuff, the air was different. Yep. The attitude was different. I, I think that we were frighteningly close to the point of no return. And I'm hoping that the man in office, President Trump, because he will not define himself as president of the United States, he's not a career politician, he has woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning wondering how to make payroll he understands the bottom line. I mean, we got a businessman there. From your standpoint, are you like me, that the businessman is more important than the politician? Well, it's huge because it's hands-on. He has the experience uh, mm-hmm. in terms of when it comes to business. And think about his acceptance speech. It was about Americans. It was about people. It wasn't about him. How many times did he say, I? You know, yeah. he's pointing you know, to the crowd, and it's about you, the people. And uh, we are going to do this. He was inclusive of, of everyone, and that is the message that he continues to try to put out there. It's about everyone. I am the president of everyone. You know, that being said, uh, you mentioned earlier media, and I, I think President Trump is changing the paradigm for interacting with the media. You think? The, yeah, I think. <laughs> uh, media doesn't like it, you know. Uh, I think that also. But, uh, you know, he's been in office officially. Uh, not even five weeks yet. And, I mean, I, I don't know how the guy does it. I mean, I, I'm going on the assumption that he feeds on 
on people poking him in the eye all day. Do you think, I mean, you, you talked about the coal industry and, and it's going to recover. The economy is probably going to recover from that, our energy. I mean, there's a lot of areas. Is the media going to get back to doing their job, or are they going to stay over on on that side and just fighting for the next four or eight years? And there's also the market that has is, has been reacting since uh, he won the election. Right. Uh, but about the media, well, we'll see if they will jump on board. Uh, I was at the press conference last Thursday when Trump, you know, went what over an hour taking any question from anyone. It wasn't scripted or. Uh, he didn't have a list of names. He picked on anyone that was in the audience and took his time answering questions. And it was, he was having a good time as well. But he basically put the media in its place because he said that they are not doing uh, due diligence when it comes to reporting the news. And the media doesn't like that. The media is very controlling. They can't control President Trump. That's why they don't want him on Twitter, for example. But he is able to take his message to Americans, whether it's from a microphone or from Twitter. And that is what the media is so mad about right now. And I think it's great. Oh, I, I, I think it's terrific. But, you know, uh, historically, you know, the media has always, I think, tried to influence things. And... The big trouble I see today, or one of the big issues, is we've become, become such a, a three to five second mentality. We're headline readers. Sound bites. And, and sound headlines. bites. Sure. And, and, you know, 140 characters. And, and the, you form an opinion based on that. One of the things that I just pound all the time with everybody I talk to is read past the headline, read the body of the article, and then don't trust the article. Read their footnotes and research and spend some time on this, we're just not doing that as a society. No, you're absolutely right. You have to go past the headlines and read more than one source. Don't just get your news and information from one source. Mm -hmm. Do your own research. You can never assume and don't just assume, you know, certain outlets are going to be truthful. And, you know, as he said, he called uh, a certain network fake news and went on to add very <laughs> fake news. Um, yeah. Will they turn around? Yeah, you know, they're so entrenched and dug in in terms of being a, a liberal establishment, really. Who knows? But we know that we can go elsewhere to get our news and information. Didn't, didn't we used to call fake news propaganda? Yeah, well, yes. that's exactly what it is. And, you know, to Deneen's point, when Deneen goes on Fox News and, you know, here's the topic, you know, two hours before, we try to read at least three articles to really see what the real issue is because you go on one, you could really be wrong, and obviously you don't, you don't want to do that for, for, the, for your credibility and, and, and for the audience you're trying to reach. Right. So it's crucially important to read more. But the, I think the most important point with respect to the media is I don't think they're going to change. They're going to continue to hammer President Trump. They're going to try to mislead those headlines. That's why he's got to deliver on jobs because what people read and see may affect them, but when they have a paycheck, when they have increase in wages, when they have more money in their pocket, that will be the real impact, and they can really ignore the media. So it's really a race. Can the media headlines you know, twist so many minds before reality in people's lives moves in the right direction? And that's the race. You know, and you, you make a, a point I've, I've made several times. I think that one, it's not the government's job to create jobs. It's the government's job to get to out of the way <laughs> to get out of the way and create an environment where you and I can create jobs. But that takes a little time. And I, I, I said early that uh, you know taxes and regulation, 
taxes and regulate. That's that's what's prohibiting people like me, small business owner. I own several companies. It, it's taxes and regulation. Sure. You know, it, it's not tariffs. That 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 hurts me as a small business also. <laughs> but I'm hoping that as a business person, that Donald Trump brings that entrepreneurial spirit to the government, and let's see what he can do. You know, well, it took so. a long time for us to get into the situation that we're in when it comes to jobs and the economy. And so uh, President Trump has a lot of business people in, in, in his cabinet. He has the business experience. And Tom and I, we talk all the time. We say he's the CEO of America. And uh, he's making decisions that are in the best interest of Americans. And jobs is at the top of the list. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate the time you're able to spend with us, Deneen, Tom. It's been fun here at CPAC. I hope you're enjoying it. I, we are, yes. With, with the exception of a uh, Secret Service intrusion. <laughs> Safety first. Safety right. first. I understand, you know, and there's a lot of nutcases out there. I just sure. hate being treated like one of them, you know. No, exactly. But, <laughs> you know, it happens. But really appreciate your time. Very insightful. I hope that uh, we Thanks. can tap you on the shoulder again and, Absolutely. and, uh, right. and I hope continue the conversation. And I hope visit our website, conservativereview.com. Conservativereview.com. We'll put that on our website, Great. make sure it gets out there. And uh, once again, thank you so much thank for you. your time. Thanks for having us. I Enjoyed appreciate it. it. Coming up next, we're going to take a look at uh, President Trump's first speech to uh, Congress and uh, give you my take on it and uh, pull out a couple points that I think are significant. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, President Trump gave his first address to a joint session of Congress this week. And uh, I got a couple things to say. One, the honeymoon is obviously over, if there ever was one. And two, I was pleasantly surprised at the presidential tone of the speech. Donald Trump gave a speech that was reminiscent of a Reagan speech. Now, I'm not comparing him to Reagan because I, I think their their methodology of communication is totally different. I think that President Reagan was a professional communicator his whole life. And I think President Trump is a entrepreneur and, and businessman, and, and they communicate differently they communicate to get their point across they they communicate to express a certain level of emotion intensity urgency and president reagan was more of a communicator more of a, a persuader trying to give you information and make you feel uh, like you wanted to be on board uh, with him and i think president trump's speech to a joint session of Congress, had some of those characteristics. There was not anything in the speech that I saw that was negatively emotional, uh, spiteful, anything like that. It was much more fatherly, much more presidential. And quite honestly, I thought it was a good speech. He talked about vision and optimism and liberty and justice. He put the points across 
that he wanted to put across. He, he laid out action steps for our military, for uh, border protection, for the rule of law, for uh, drugs in this country, for uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, the repeal and replace, for business, for taxes, uh, lowering regulation. I mean, it was all there. It was all there. And I think that uh, uh, had he made speeches like this on the campaign trail, made speeches like this, made a speech like this for his inauguration, I think that maybe, maybe the press would be a little different. Now, maybe not, but maybe. The Democrats during this speech, the ones that that showed up, that didn't uh, try to make a statement by boycotting uh, the presidential speech, uh, the ones that showed up were... I don't even know the word, infantile, grade school, playgroundish. I mean, it was amazing, amazing. And the press and the pundits were amazing the day after the talk, vilifying the Marine wife that was invited and, and pointed out. I mean, can, can these people get any more, any more of the appearance of sour grapes? I mean, they refuse to give any indication of ever possibly working with President Trump. It was obvious by never applauding, not standing, uh, that kind of stuff. It, It was obvious they don't care about this country. They don't care about you. They don't care about the country. They lost. They're bitter. They can't believe Donald Trump won. And they're not getting their way, so they're gonna pout and stomp their feet and cry and that kind of stuff. They're babies. We know that. And it was 110% on display at the speech that uh, President Donald Trump gave uh, this week to Congress. And it, 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 it doesn't bother me so much that they're bitter. I guess what bothers me is the intellectual, um, uh, the the insincerity in the intellectual process not to recognize reality. One of my favorite quotes of all time from Ayn Rand is, you can avoid reality, but you cannot avoid the consequences of avoiding reality. And the reality is that this country is is uh, significantly worse off eight years after President Obama than we were eight years ago. Millions more people on food stamps, millions of people living in pro- poverty, 94 million people out of the workforce. Now, they cook the books, cook the numbers to make the, the unemployment numbers look better. But we all know the participation rate in the the labor market is at uh, like 30-year lows or something like that. And we need at this time a leader that will, that will give us a sense of optimism. I think the growth of this country, the revival of this country boils down to the individual, you and me. And I'll take the responsibility for that. But I need to know there's a government not constantly working against me. And I think President Trump has the ability to give us that vision, that optimism, that feeling 
that, you know what, we do have a little bit of power back and we do have some control over our dentist, uh, over our destiny. And I think that's what he brings to the table. We'll see. But for now, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and give him my support. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.